Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's John Scardina. Man, I'm really excited for this episode. This is a really timely episode, actually. We're in January right now. We're thinking about current events. Andy John was on our episode, uh, one of our episodes in the summer, talking about January 6th. He's now involved with a problem in Jan- January 3rd. We'll talk about that in a second. Next year, hopefully, it's not January 1st. But either way, if, uh, if it's in January and uh, Andy John's there, then there will most likely be a problem that he has to fix, and he does a pretty good job at fixing it. So we're excited to have him back on the show. Andy, welcome. Thanks, John. Appreciate the kind words. Uh, yeah, I think we were breaking the record this year. We made it three days instead of six this year. But <laughs> some of those yeah. things are starting to move south on 95. So hopefully, you know, it won't be in my region next year. But if it is, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll be ready. That's hilarious. Yeah. You know, uh, when I first saw the report that that, you know, people were stuck in their car for 27 hours in D.C., it was like, oh, that sounds like a normal day in D.C. <laughs> on the roads, you know. So, OK, let's let's just talk about it, though. You know, we're 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 uh, we're hinting at I-95. There was a major snow event that happened on January, uh, January 3rd. Um, I would like you to give us some of the, the background details before we go into the disaster, because what happened, it was just so rapid that. Um, you know, like even if you had a plan in place, it was, you know, record snowfalls, right? Like four inches an hour or something like that. So can you give us some kind of the background of what staged um, this incident and then let's get into it? Yeah, thanks, John. Um, You know, I would say it was one of those things where you didn't realize till afterwards all the different uh, impacts that were going to play into this event or this incident and all the different contributing factors. Uh, so if you go back to the day, it was January 3rd, it was the first Monday coming off a major holiday break. So, you know, folks were traveling for two weeks, uh, Christmas, New Year's, that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, we had uh, forecasted a foot of snow in that section of 95. It's the Fredericksburg, Stafford County, Spotsylvania area, uh, pretty much halfway between Richmond and, and D.C. Uh, and so you've got a lot of folks that are traveling back from you know, Florida or wherever else coming uh, back to the Northeast or to Virginia, wherever they were going that were getting on the interstate, you had a foot of snow or more coming down at, like you said, uh, anywhere from two to four inches per hour rates. Uh, and you had it hitting at the time where most people are, are doing their normal commute. <clears throat> As you mentioned, you know, traffic in DC area is not foreign to us. So you had all of those contributing factors all happening at one time. Uh, and so the snow came down, uh, around 8 a.m., it was it was coming in heavy at that two to four inch per hour. Um, you know, when I was out there, I saw license plates from Florida, from Georgia, from New York, you know, going both ways on 95, all adding to the, you know, normal commuting traffic that we had, uh, that we have in Northern Virginia. So uh, all of those things at once were kind of happening. Uh, so it was happening quick. Uh, and what a lot of people don't realize is, you know, the news was showing that there was folks stuck overnight. There was folks stuck on Tuesday. We actually had accidents starting from 8 a.m. Monday morning all the way through until we uh, ended up closing 95, both north and southbound the next morning. Uh, I think it was somewhere around 5 or 6 a.m. So, um, you know, the, the backups had already started. Uh, the first incident I think we had was a six tractor trailer uh, backup on the southbound side of 95. Uh, which on any normal day is a mess to clean up. Uh, and so that kind of started that. And I, I got to commend state police and our DOT in Virginia. Uh, you know, they were trying to find ways just to keep traffic moving all day. Uh, so clearing at least one lane of road so traffic could get around, uh, trying to plow other areas of the road so folks could get open on that side. 
uh, it was a constant, you know, chess, chess game, if you will, of, you know, battling the wrecks, battling the snow, trying to get plows where they could actually get through, uh, clearing at least one lane of traffic. It was a constant battle all day. Uh, and in fact, some of our first responders, some of our DOT leadership, some of our emergency management staff that work uh, locally and regionally were also the ones stuck in this traffic, not able to get to the EOC, not able to get to their post or their station or to the command post, uh, you name it. And so it was a lot of cascading uh, effects that were happening, impacts that we were just having to rapidly kind of respond to all day through the night and uh, into the next day. Uh, and honestly, I think that's probably the, the biggest after action for me as an emergency manager. You know, one of our jobs is to is to paint that big picture, the common operating picture. Uh, what is the scope of this event or incident? What are the impacts that we're going to see two, three, four hours from now, two, three, four days from now? Uh, and the biggest thing to me is I don't think we realized until probably 3 a.m. that we had folks still on the road that were there from 10 a.m., uh, 8 a.m., uh, and will likely be stuck there until we can get the road clear the next day. Uh, and so it took us a while to really get that understanding as a collective public safety uh, group or mindset that we had a long-term problem on our hands and we had folks that were impacted at the beginning of Monday morning that are still going to be impacted all the way through. Uh, until Tuesday evening once we got everything cleared up. And like I was just telling you, John, uh, before we got started, 95 wasn't the only game in town. Uh, we had a record snowfall. Um, and, you know, some a lot of our emergency managers may be aware of the, you know, the, the snow declaration process for FEMA, but we had several jurisdictions reach their record snowfall uh, to be eligible for some expenses for FEMA. But what that tells me is we had record snowfall throughout jurisdictions. We also had power outages uh, that extended seven days. So a whole week we had people without power. Uh, all of the, all of the uh, connection roads that, you know, if we were tried, if we tried to reroute 95, we couldn't because route three, route one, you know, all of our reroute options were, were blocked as well. And so it just turned into, uh, you know, a lot of cascading impacts from, from this. And, you know, just the painting that big picture, I think is something we could have done a little bit better from, from last week. Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's Disaster Tough endorsements. This show is owned and operated by professional emergency managers at Doberman Emergency Management. We apply Disaster Tough logic by protecting life, property, and business continuity through planning, mitigation, and training. Check us out at DobermanEMG.com or click on the show notes. Radiocoms just got a major breakthrough with the L3 Harris XL Extreme 400P. It's the newest and toughest radio out there. Built by their space and tactical teams, the XL Extreme Series can take a beating. 1,700 degree blast of heat, repeated 3 meter drops, rain, salt water, you name it. The XL Extreme Series by L3 Harris can take it. Visit L3Harris.com to schedule your demo today. The battle to monitor and contain COVID-19 just got exponentially better for us. We are officially introducing an electronic reusable, yes, reusable COVID-19 test through our sponsors. It's called the COVID Plus Test, created by Tiger Tech, distributed by FS Global. This is the first FDA-authorized, rapid, non-invasive pre-screener. It's extremely easy to use. Forget those one-time use swabs. This is a disaster-tough technology. For more information on the COVID plus test, check out our show notes. Okay, let's jump back in. Well, uh, I think you're being incredibly generous uh, to yourself 
So you're, um, you're a smart man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as an emergency manager in it, you're able to look inward and say, Hey, what can I do better? Like that that's built into emergency management, my after action, what can I do better? Um, as a guy who lived in DC, I uh, lived through snowmageddon and, um, lived through, uh, some of these big events and, and understanding that there's not a lot of like off ramps. Um, I also know that there's like the, the gas station issue and the national cap region just drives me nuts. Cause a lot of gas stations are not even like right on the highway. They're usually off the highway. And so like, you have a lot of complexity there and, um, you know, kudos to you for saying, Hey, Hey, like, um, you know, just both recognizing it takes a lot of time to get everybody on the same table, especially if they are stuck on the road. People forget that. Um, you know, we, we like to say like the local responder in a hurricane, his house is being destroyed or her house is being destroyed. So, you know, there's, there's that call out, but at the same time, it's a, it's, it's winter time and it does snow in the region. And yeah, there's people from outside the area. You called it out, but I would say that it's not like an anomaly, right? Like maybe a lot of snow falling, falling is a, is a new thing. Maybe that we should be aware of that and, and maybe the rate but to think, Hey, it's going to snow in DC in the winter. Um, I, I think the onus is on uh, public safety to be, to be aware of those constraints of uh, what's happening. But I also think it's uh, it's on the people traveling and there might be, a hundred different reasons. And I think I shared this, uh, I was invited on disaster class, uh, podcast and they asked me about that and they're two paramedics and they said the same thing. Hey, we would have had to come into work or paramedics. How, how did we get into work? But, um, they asked me about whose responsibility it was. And I said, uh, you know, you have two equal parties, two adults in this situation. And if they're driving, they're most likely adults anyway. So, um, again, kudos to you, but you know, what could have people done maybe a little bit better to avoid that situation? Um, you, again, another call out from you is like it was coming off a holiday. So people trying to either rush to get home or get back to work or and so so many factors uh, to this situation, for sure. I, I kind of imagine, you know, and I found myself doing this, too, because there were there were things that I needed to get done that day outside of work, um, you know, but I just imagine folks thinking, yeah, it's just snow, right? You know, I can get on the road. Interstate's going to be fine. I'll get through, even if there's a, a few inches or whatnot, you know, I, I can, I can get through it. Um, but I will say, and I have to be careful saying this because there are a lot of lessons learned on the public safety side, but some of the things I saw on the interstate um, kind of had me concerned about our individual preparedness, our public preparedness. Mm. Um, there were also a lot of things that, you know, really warmed my heart. Uh, there's a lot of great stories about, you know, people handing out bottled water and snacks and uh, a local bread, bread, right? yeah, a, local bread was, company just opened awesome. up this truck. It was awesome. Um, mm. But, you know, I also saw people that just weren't weren't prepared to be driving through a forecasted foot of snow <laughs> uh, and, you know, yeah. being ready for that, whether it was extra blankets, wearing the proper winter clothing um, that we should be wearing to to make sure we we keep ourselves warm in the winter and, um you know, and understanding that maybe your vehicle isn't properly uh, suited for winter driving as well. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity on the emergency management side to continue to educate the public on how to prepare yourself when you're when you're mobile, when you're at home, 
when you're at the business place, whatever it is, there's a lot of opportunity there for us to continue to use this as an example to say, you know, understand the forecast, understand the environment you're going to be in and prepare for it. And honestly, you know, looking outside of the 95 incident, I kind of mentioned it, but we had power out for a week in some cases for folks, you know, you, you hear it often, but we got to get away from the 72 hour time frame that, hey, you might be out, be without power for 72 hours, or you might be without government assistance for 72 hours. That's the minimum, right? Yeah. That's the minimum. We got to start talking maximums and, you know, thinking outside the box of how long might you actually be without power? How long might you be out with government services and making sure our people are prepared for that? So uh, I plugged a disaster tough po- or a disaster class podcast. I'm going to, I'm going to plug one other one. Um, you know, Patrick McGinn, uh, Patrick McGinn has been on our show a number of times uh, just for our audience, uh, Andy, myself and Patrick all served on the national team together at one point. And um, now Patrick and I do this, uh, do a completely different show. It's called movie R movie after action review, where we kind of make fun of movies. It's like a, a mystery science theater, 3000 meets emergency management. It's kind of a lighthearted thing. Um, but at the end of it, um, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because uh, the episode that just came out is um, essentially it's like Thanos, the, the snap, the blip. And we were trying to compare that to like a real world. Like what would happen if you lost your ability to have critical infrastructure for numerous days? And um Basically, like that, we came down to the same conclusion of it is so much easier to get through um, long-term events and big, big events as a community than as individuals. And um, you know, there's there's probably a whole lot of people who uh, got converted to wanting to have a go bag in their car, but it was also a call out that like the people on the road that were stuck because of the actual mess, the first responders have to get there too. So it's, it's a, it's an all, it's a compounded issue, but the the reason why their lives were made easier is because of that community that they were able to form yeah. on the road in real time between water and bread and snacks. And, um, you know, I, I think that's pretty cool to see that in real time. Um, in, in business, uh, I found these axioms and, two of the axioms are it's usually better than what you think it is. And it's usually more fragile than what you think it is. But in disasters, I think it's opposite. It's usually worse than what you think it is. And uh, people are usually stronger than what you think they are. And like, I, I don't think those are conflicting. I really think it's a call out to both parties to say, okay, the reason why you're, you got off the road is because there's a whole community that helped you get off that road. The responders the people, the planners, the emergency managers, the DOT, as you called out, all the groups coming together to help you get off the road. But as uh, as we're seeing, people will find a way to to live. They will find a way to to get through that. And so, um, man, just like what a unique event. And, and what I think is most interesting is your call out of like it wasn't just I ninety five. This is a regional issue, right? So what is your take? So you have media. We've seen this in every disaster that you and I have gone to. You've seen it yourself in, in your own events. You have a media perspective of this is the event. But then when all the camera goes away, after 48 hours of I-95, you still had a week-long power outages. So how, does you, how do you make sure that you're able to keep up that tempo even when there's 
not a lot of, I, I would say, drama uh, or public drama surrounding it. Like, how do you sure. keep up that that efficiency? I would say the public was definitely paying attention, and it may not have been because the news was promoting it, but you know, they were without power for four or five days or longer. Good point. They're they're very aware of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and yeah. so, you know, they we still had cell service, thankfully, and and phone, and um, you know, folks were calling their local governments and calling. Uh, you know, state governments and, um, you know, certain officials and leaders saying, what's the plan? You know, where, what's the power restoration time? You know, where are they prioritizing? And, you know, a lot of folks were asking those questions. And so it's, it's imperative whether or not the media chooses to focus on something that you're still providing the public information to folks so that they understand uh, what, what environment they're going to be living in for the next few days or, or longer. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, I think it was as soon as 95 opened Tuesday evening. Um, I think it shifted to another snowstorm in the Midwest, right? We saw a very similar, maybe not as extended, but a very similar thing in Kentucky with the interstate getting backed up uh, in Pakistan. I think the next day, I don't know if you saw that or not, but yeah. you know, where 20 or 30 people died because of it. And so I think you're, you're absolutely right. We should always assume it's worse than we think it is so that we are prepared and we're leaning forward and, uh, we're making sure all of our I's are dotted and T's are crossed and every individual uh, from the, the wealthiest person to the lowest income person has been taken care of and is back to where they need to be. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't follow the media tempo, tempo for that, um, but we should utilize them as a, as a necessary carrier of information uh, for the public so that they understand what is government doing, how long is this going to be, you know, managing those expectations and where can they find help? So, you know, is there... Uh, is there a warming center or a shelter that's been stood up? And, and in this incident, absolutely every jurisdiction in that 95 corridor had some sort of warming center or shelter that was opened up eventually uh, to help folks come in and, you know, charge their cell phones, get warm, grab a warm meal, whatever it was. And so making sure that message gets out there uh, was extremely crucial in this incident because it was it was cold. It stayed cold. You know, it really didn't get warm until the end of the week. And so folks without power you know, the temperature in their households are starting to go down each day as well. Uh, so it was just imperative that we got that message out there of where they could continue to get help. Um, so many good points there again. And I, I want to switch gears to like your kind of your timeline of the events of like what you did um, and how you did it. Um, but before that, you know, you talked you talked about the chess match and I brought this up or alluded to it before on a previous episode that I had the opportunity to be a keynote speaker at a NATO uh, training in the U.S. and I talked about the chess mounts of disasters and I talked about how the politician is the king, uh, both because a politician is a king and vice versa, but also at the same time, like you always have to be constantly aware of them. And if they do something, you know, they're, all, they're, they're kind of the most vulnerable, but if, if they lose, you lose. And I, I just uh, thought it was uh, really cool as I was doing research for this episode, um, there was a politician, I think Tim Kaine, on the road, he talked about his experience, but uh, he didn't say anything bad about the responders. He didn't, he, he understood the situation that he was in. He was stuck just like everybody else. He's just like everybody else. And he's talked about like, hey, I only had an orange and I think he said a Diet Coke um, to, to have during that time. And again, that's a good call out of like somebody who people perceive as, you know, wealthy, has a lot of you know, uh, resources available to them. They were just stuck as well. And they, um, it was a learning experience for him as well. So, uh, it was a good call out that 
you didn't have an additional issue just because politicians were involved. But there are there are lessons to be learned and try to avoid that. So um, just in switching gears here for a second. Um, okay, so were you actually at the EOC or did you have to do this virtually? Because I-95 is in your area, right? How did you actually get to work? So the answer is yes. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we so we operate in, you know, geographically in Virginia, right? So we have, and it's not a fixed place. It's just wherever we, we can set up and we have regional coordination centers that could set up. We have the state emergency operations center mm -hmm. that each regional coordination center kind of feeds information to. And, you know, um, it allows us to get resources to where they need to go quicker because we work regionally to find that resource. And if we don't have it, we send that up to the state EOC, who then looks statewide at other regions, or of course they can work the EMAC system and everything else. So uh, we do operate geographically for that uh, uh, for that reason. Uh, but this incident was impacting multiple regions. So 95 goes through, I guess, three of our regions, if I if I'm remembering the map correctly. So Region Seven, Northern Virginia, Region Two, which is uh, kind of our Northwest Fredericksburg area, and then um, region one, which is our central region. So 95 stretches that whole corridor. Uh, and so you had two different state police districts or divisions, two different DOT districts and two different emergency management regions. And so that added to the complexity of this incident where, you know, we're having to work across regional boundaries to respond to this. Uh, bring in extra resources from Northern Virginia, where we had already uh, been able to kind of clear the snow in our area, bring it down south, uh, bring resources up from the north to kind of all attack that Fredericksburg, Stafford area. Uh, and so the typical regional coordination center concept uh, wasn't as fluid as it normally is for, for a statewide event. Uh, so we were having to do a lot of cross cross regional conversation, bring local emergency managers together that you know, might not talk all the time because they're in two separate regions, that sort of thing. Uh, and so we had to act quickly. We actually just established our regional coordination center jointly uh, mm. with our region two partners um, and, and did that almost flawlessly and almost instantaneously because we knew it needed to happen. Uh, and so, you know, I was out on 95 for a little bit, trying to get some eyes on the, the incident to understand the scope and magnitude. Uh, I spent some time in the Stafford County Emergency Operations Center providing direct support uh, to, to their local operation. VDEM provided staff to the Stafford uh, EOC as well for the long duration mm -hmm. uh, of the week. And then I made different stops uh, up in Northern Virginia with my localities up there to make sure everything was, was smooth up there. But during the 95 piece, uh, I could, I'd say it was probably a combination of on-scene support, EOC support, and then virtual support through phone and some of the various platforms we have. Sounds like a type one event. It really does. Like for the, the amount of things that you had to do. Um, did it feel like, did it, so you've been like the large scale disasters, right? Like I, when I say large scale, I mean like statewide or, or more than statewide, even though this is more localized, the, the amount of impact in that, that area is drastic, right? Like, did it feel like that, that, that level of event for you? In the moment? Absolutely. Yeah. Right? When you realize you have a 60, 68 mile backup of people who've been there for 27 hours, absolutely type yeah. type one level one incident where uh, you're at a very high risk of injury, of fatality, uh, of infrastructure going down, which it did uh, until we could get the road clear. Right. Yeah. Um, 
So a very high risk for a potential type one incident, a level one incident. Absolutely. It felt like that uh, for that 48 hour period, at least it felt like that for sure. It goes back to that original argument and uh, I'm getting off track here a little bit, but there's an argument that type one vents, like one of the uh, parameters is geographic size. But when people argue that they, they look at nine 11 and they're like, Hey, two buildings, New York city, uh, you know, Pentagon, a plane in, uh, in the forest, right? Like the geographic sizes, uh, I mean, impacted the entire United States for sure. But in terms of the actual disaster, small. And so I would, I would always consider nine 11 as type one. It changed everything. And, um, like this is more of a mental exercise, but these localized disasters, if they are catastrophic or they have the potential to be truly catastrophic and you have on all hands deck a situation where you're trying to do new things and or record snowfalls, for example, then yeah, like the tempo can certainly feel like that. And kudos to, to you and to a DOT and, uh, local law enforcement firefighters for starting to clear that within um, 48 hours. But yeah, like the cascading effects, the supply chain, uh, the power outages, the gas issues, like all that other stuff that compounds when you have that. So you talked about warming centers. And so if you're going to like uh, give a, a, a very brief timeline, if you if another emergency manager has to deal with a winter storm or a, a related event where they'll have a multi-day power outage where there's could be people stuck on a highway for 68 miles. That's nuts. Uh, what would be your, what would be your tempo of events and or lessons learned so that they can implement? You're going to, you're going to love me for this, John, but I'm going to say, you know, look at the data, right? You should be, you should be able to go back if you have time at the local level. Sometimes you don't have time for this kind of stuff. I, I, um, I understand that and see it. But if you have time to look back at your historical snowstorms and understand, you know, is it eight inches? Is it a foot? Is it two inches per hour? You know, kind of look at that criteria and say that's that's the threshold where we need to lean forward, where we need to prepare, where we need to activate pre pre stage assets, turn on warming centers, all of that. Uh, it should give you a good indication of, of when you need to be thinking a little more than it's just a normal snowstorm. Um, you know, and so for me going forward, you know, the two inch per hour threshold, boom, uh, eight inches to a foot of snow, boom, you know, we're pre-staging, we're activating. Uh, and if we don't need it, then we don't need it. We turn it off. Everything goes back home and we're, we're safe and, and ready to go. But, uh, identifying those thresholds and then knowing what actions you're going to take once you've met those thresholds is what I would say would help, you know, any future winter storm. Gosh, mic drop moment. That's a, that's the <laughs> mic drop moment. Uh, I'm a big fan of data, as you know, um, so thank you. But the, the decision-making process can be met faster, more efficiently with data, both historical data and real-time data. I like the idea of thresholds. Um, I'm a big fan of thresholds, and I'm a big fan of, well, we staged a bunch of stuff, but you're welcome. There was no problem. Um, yeah. And the another snowstorm event is just like uh, several years ago in New York City. They predicted a big storm in New York City. They shut everything down and missed them for, you know, by 50 miles or something. And there was massive uh, snowstorms in um, upstate New York, but not in the city. And people complained. And I was like, like, what are you complaining about? Like, right. you, you just had no problem. Congratulations. You have no problem. And uh, I, I think that's um, I, I think that's the, the call out there of um, 
yeah, creating thresholds. And I would say that for every disaster type. What what do you know that you your resources can manage and how fast? That's a very important one, how fast. And then implement implement quickly and um, you know, let it ride, you know. Yeah. So, and I would say don't forget to look at the environment too. You know, it was a holiday coming off a holiday weekend, right? Cool. Uh so not only were people traveling more than they probably would be. The time of the the storm coming in was commuting time. And then of course, everybody was back to work, including public safety. So just understanding the environment you're in and then looking at the data and kind of having those two mirror up against one another is is extremely helpful. Some might be shocked that there's programs out there that you can put all of that data in there at the (laughs) same time and to say, let it, you know, run that, run that algorithm and say, okay, we have a holiday. It's going to be it's only two inches instead of four inches, but it's a holiday. So we have this much more traffic, 30% more traffic. Uh, the temperature is this, you know, the, you know, like it's almost more dangerous at that 31, 32, because you get a lot of ice very quickly, you know? Um, so there's, there's a lot of different factors that can go into this. And what makes everybody's life easier is to, in the blue sky period, start to put all that data together so that you don't have to, somehow try to save everybody's lives and sustain life, but also like, oh, let me go through all these factors and like, you can have your threshold, but put put all the data into that threshold. I think that's a um, great call out. Uh, Andy, thanks again so much for coming on the show. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I seriously hope 2023, we don't have an event on January 1st, but uh, if there is one in DC and, and you're there, I know um, they're going to be exponentially better with you there and uh, the people that you work with because you guys are knocking it out of the park. Um, and that's pretty obvious. So I'm going to give that give that uh, shout out to you guys one more time. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. And uh, if I could do a shameless plug, I do want to thank uh, the local uh, emergency managers, state police, VDOT, the Region 7 VDEM team, uh, the VDEM as an agency, everybody that contributed we had no fatalities and no loss of life for a 48-hour backup on 95. Huge accomplishment. Could we have done things a little bit better? Always. Uh, could the public have been a little bit more prepared? Always. But no fatalities, no injuries. And we, we walk away with lessons learned and nothing more. So um, just you know, kudos to everyone that was a part of that incident and response. And uh, um, yeah, thanks for having me on, John. Appreciate it as always. Absolutely. All right, everybody. If you like this episode, if you learned something, if you have ideas of what to do, or if you've been in a similar incident where you've had to deal with a long-term power outage, especially during the winter, and you have ideas, let us know on social media. We have lots of different options to do that, whether it's LinkedIn or Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, Disaster Tough Podcast. Check it out. Leave us a comment. Ask a question to Andy if you have a specific question of you know, how to opening a, a warming center or who to connect with that. Maybe he can give you some ideas there. So make sure you check this out. You can always send us an email. We get lots of questions through email as well at info at dobermanemg.com. And we'll see you next week.